Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. Today we turn to the history side. One of my own longtime interests is the American Civil War. Believe it or not, there is one particular aspect about this war that is little talked about. Truly, it is a story that's never been told. I don't think it was even mentioned in Ken Burns' sweeping documentary, The Civil War. It's the story of Southern men who fought in the Union Army. Don't call them Yankees. Historians tell us that upwards of 50,000 men left their homes in the South to fight for the United States, and they came in measurable numbers from every Southern state except South Carolina. Most of them, though, came from Tennessee, especially East Tennessee. One of those was my great-great-grandfather, my grandmother's grandfather. And that's how I was introduced to this subject, trying to learn more about him. And that's how I became interested in the 2nd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry, USA, the regiment in which he enlisted and served. And in searching out his story, I discovered theirs. And in searching out their story, I learned an incredible lot about him. And I learned some things about America, too, that I think need to be reconsidered in this day. So this is not just an academic interest to me. I I find it enthralling. That you picked this podcast indicates that you probably already have some interest in the Civil War also. Now, your interest may not be so personal as mine, although... Most of the people I know who are interested in the Civil War have some personal involvement in it. Perhaps also an ancestor, perhaps ancestors on both sides. And whether your interest is personal or just a matter of historical curiosity, I'm glad you found me. Before we get started, let me tell you where I'm coming from. It's paradoxical about looking into history, because we obviously cannot know what our ancestors who fought in that war knew. But at the same time, we can know more than they knew in some ways and actually understand more in some ways than they did about their own service in that war. You see, seldom does the private know the whys and wherefores of the orders that he's been given, of the marches that wear him out or of the fight into which he's sent. We may not be able to recreate in detail his first experiences, but we can imagine them authentically and empathetically. On the other hand, from our vantage a century and a half later, we do have a gauge of the vastness of the conflict that he could never hope to have, and even in his lifetime may not have fully grasped. Following threads of evidence from the little we start with, We can learn more from investigation, but once we've learned so many details that we did not know before, we have still not finished our task. It's my purpose to understand and describe not only the several experiences of my great-great-grandfather, but to place his life and military service in the larger context of the great civil war in which he fought, the war that changed the destiny of the United States, even as it altered the destiny of his personal life and that of his descendants. Now, you can take whatever point of view you wish regarding the Civil War. I'm going to tell their story as one seeking to understand these men and their motivations. Here's the important thing. 
I believe that a life is not small and inconsequential because it is without fame, that great historical events lend their greatness to individual lives that participate in them, and those events have acquired their great historical significance through the participation of thousands of unsung individuals like my ancestor. But this is more than the story of one man. It's the story of thousands of men who fought for the Union. But don't call them Yankees. They were Southern men, Tennessee men. And in telling this story, I'm telling their story as well. Chapter 1, The Cause, A Choice Forced Upon Us August 1861 Late in the afternoon on Tuesday, August 20th, 1861, Alvis Hicks, age 21, arrived at Camp Dick Robinson, Kentucky, one man near the head of a line of about 360. Their march through the rolling hills of the bluegrass region over the past couple of days made for a mild end to a journey that began quite roughly over a week ago. Footsore and wearing the dust of travel, he stood in line behind his 25-year-old brother, Will, he enrolled under his first name, Alvis, and his brother as William. They were among the first to enlist in the newly formed 2nd East Tennessee Infantry, Volunteer, USA, and were assigned, along with dozens of their neighbors, to A Company, pending formal designation as a U.S. Army Regiment. They would soon be joined by thousands of men and boys from East Tennessee who held U Union sympathies. Theirs was one of the large columns. Others might come in smaller groups, while a few straggled in by ones and twos. Who was Alvis Duncan Hicks? Alvis Duncan and William Jackson Hicks were the sons of Adrie Hicks, a farmer born about 1814, probably in Morgan County, Tennessee. That, apparently, also is where Alvis was born on February 2, 1840. Adri Hicks and his family are listed for the first time in the 1850 Morgan County Census. He and his wife, Nancy Jenkins Hicks, both 36, are listed then as natives of Tennessee, and best evidence is that Morgan County was his birthplace. The record tells us that Adri could read and write. He was a farmer, owning real estate in the value of $300. Okay, but what does that mean in terms of real wealth? Well, by comparison... In 1850, the average daily wage of a common laborer on the Erie Canal was 88 cents, and for a skilled carpenter, $1.50. So, for a farmer in East Tennessee, $300 would probably represent the savings of about a year's wages. Adrie Hicks's family was not in affluent by any standard, but uh, considering that several Hicks family household in the same neighborhood likely shared in a cooperative arrangement, neither were they the poorest of the poor. By pooling their resources, they had enough acreage to grow a marketable crop, probably of wheat or corn. Adrian Nancy had nine children. Will was the second born in the family, after elder sister Elvira, who was 16 when the census taker came in 1850. Later that same year, Elvira would leave home to marry 19-year-old John Sperlin. The third child was James, age 12, followed by Alvis, 10. 
There were five other younger children ranging from age eight to three months. Will, James, Alvis, and their younger sister Mary had attended school the previous year. Now, there weren't many schoolhouses in the area. Probably the school that they attended held its sessions in a church house, and those who sent their children had to contribute money or goods to keep it going. Adri was a literate man, and it must have been important to him to see that his children also had the rudiments of an education. In 1855, at the young age of 41, Adri either died or set off for Oklahoma Territory to pursue a new opportunity. Not exactly sure which. There are stories on both sides. At any rate, he left his family behind. Alvis was only 15. And according to the family story, living at home was a hardship for the boy. We have no details of the conflicts he experienced, but the fact that he had two older brothers and a house full of younger sisters might be a clue. He left home soon afterward and worked as a hired hand doing farming and carpentry. In 1859, at age 19, Alvis married 17-year-old Nancy Perry, the daughter of widow Polly Perry. Nancy had two older twin brothers, two older sisters, and a younger sister. Will also got married that same year. Alvis shows up in the 1860 census as Duncan Hikes, possibly a reflection of the East Tennessee accent that the census taker took down just as he heard it. Hikes. He and Nancy were dwelling near the Roan County village of Barnardsville. Will and his wife and the married older sister Elvira and her husband lived in the same neighborhood. Alvis, or Duncan, as he apparently preferred to be called at the time, reported owning property worth $30. Alvis and Will Hicks came to Camp Dick Robinson, accompanied by other kinfolk. Their unmarried brother James, 23, and some cousins had already arrived a day earlier with the group from Kingston led by Robert K. Byrd and had joined the 1st Regiment that mustered under Byrd's command. Besides these, five other Hicks men enlisted in the 2nd Tennessee, all but one of them on the 20th and 21st of August. They included Winfield Hicks from Roan County, age 40, or maybe 50, there are two different records, who was given a medical discharge less than a year later, and 19-year-old Joseph B. Hicks, also from Roan County. Now, there's very good reason to believe that young Joe was Alvis's first cousin, the son of his uncle, whose own name was Joseph. Indeed, the fact that all but two of the Hicks men were assigned to A Company along with Alvis and Wild is a strong indication that all these men were related. It was the common policy of the U.S. Army and the Confederate Army also, for that matter, to assign troops to the same unit who were from the same town and family. Also there at the enlistment table that day was 20-year-old Andrew Jackson Snow. Everybody called him Jack. Another Roan County man, he was personally acquainted with the Hicks brothers and was a comrade of theirs in A Company. Jack was reared on one of the small family farms in the region, a stout lad, six feet in height, tall, but not towering over the other Tennesseans whose average height was a full inch taller than soldiers from other states. He passed through the same adventures and privations as Alvis Hicks, including, ultimately, internment in Andersonville, yet lived to the age of 99. 
1935, he was interviewed by a journalist, and his story so closely follows the track of Alvis Hicks that reading it is about as close as we can get to a written war memoir of my ancestor. It's a wonderful and rare virtual first-person account that provides many of the details in this podcast. At the time Alvis enlisted, he and his wife Nancy had a baby daughter. And by the way, I'm just going to go ahead and mention at this time that uh, Nancy's brothers enlisted not in the Union Army, but in the Confederate Army. Will and his wife also had a young son, only a few months old. Now, why would a young man with a newly growing family freely enlist in the Army? There are three possible reasons that quickly come to mind to us who are so far removed from that time. We might think of domestic unhappiness, dire financial need, or hmm, both. We must remember that in the summer of 1861, it was still thought by most on both sides that the war would be of short duration. Uh, practically all the men who signed up for the Second Tennessee, like the rest of their fellow Americans on both sides of the conflict, were expecting that their military career would last several months at the most. Maybe the struggling young farmer, a hired hand living not much above a subsistence level, felt that a secure U.S. Army paycheck would compensate for his absence from home. He may also have felt the need to move his young family north for safety's sake, since the atmosphere in East Tennessee was rapidly turning hostile. But these are the pragmatic concerns of those who are living in a time of peace, trying to imagine the motivations of those who are going to war. Less tangible, but far more powerful, is the motivating power of heartfelt patriotism and a national loyalty in a time when people feel that their home and security are threatened. A man's own conscience and sense of honor are fundamental things. These East Tennesseans who gathered at Camp Dick Robinson may have been mostly simple, poor farmers, but they were also men with deep convictions and well-defined beliefs. Though their pro-Confederate neighbors derisively called them Lincolnites, it wasn't for Lincoln that they signed up to fight. They had no personal loyalty to him. And, and indeed, Lincoln's name and party were not even on the Tennessee ballot in 1860. Neither were they interested in the abolition of slavery. Some, in fact, were adamantly opposed to abolition. And some, particularly the officers, were well off enough to own slaves. The Union was their cause. The Union was not an abstract concept to them. It was the embodiment and protector of their way of life. It was an extension of their own selves. Seeing that their way of life was endangered, the same sense of honor that spurred their fellow Southerners to seek independence from the United States likewise spurred these men to make the opposite choice. As a population, as Oliver Temple put it in the chronicle that he wrote of this time, these were true nonconformists who stood against the tide and who left behind their homes in order to defend them. Without question, it was this mix of patriotism, conviction, and honor that led Alvis, along with his brothers and kin and neighbors, to leave their homes and families in order to join a cause greater than any private interests. We can get some insight into the thoughts and feelings of many of these men through the words of one of them, 
by the name of Paul Groger. He joined the 2nd Tennessee in the early fall. And later, after the war, he wrote a memoir of his time. And in that memoir, he describes the terrible mixture of excitement and resolution and dread that he experienced as he signed up at Camp Dick Robinson. Back in the spring of that year, while the state of Tennessee was still debating secession, Paul's mother died. And he was still grieving over the loss and struggling to maintain the family farm. And he and his younger brother were also in a quandary as to what to do now. And here's what he writes. He says, We remained that summer by ourselves, made a small crop, although we felt very much lost and alone. Besides, we felt in trouble. What would become of us as the war commenced to rage over our country and the rebels began to imprison the Union men and conscript and force the people into the rebellion? In this part of the country, all the young men that felt unsafe by staying at home wished to give their assistance to the Union cause, left for Kentucky to join the Union Army. I was, from all my heart, a Union man and felt myself under as much obligation as any other loyal men protected by our government to go and fight for it, instead of cowardly laying back to hide in the rock houses. So consequently, I made up my mind to leave my old beloved home and my dear little brother. I also left my property in the hands of other people, trusting everything to their care and management. I gave my farewell to little Adam, who I left with one of my neighbors, not knowing whether it be the last farewell in this world. I departed from him, trusting that heaven would look down upon us with mercy and guide us through all the perils and dangers that seemed to await our destiny. I was with all my heart a Union man. There's something profoundly American in Paul Groger's self-description beyond the obvious, and it's something that characterized men on both sides of the great controversy. It's the conviction of free men that their beliefs are important, regardless of whether they have wealth, power, education, or pedigree. Their beliefs are important because they are free men. And at the same time, their beliefs put them under obligation because they are free men. Here's a young man barely out of his teens. But though no one forces him, he's chosen in his heart to be a union man. No one outside of God, his family, and his neighborhood may know who he is or know his name, but what he believes matters because he's free. East Tennessee versus Tennessee. East Tennessee was an island of unionism surrounded by a sea of secession. Two months had gone by since Tennessee had voted to secede when these young Tennesseans left home to go to war. The Unionists were fired up. Their allegiance was being challenged and their fervor was stoked by pressure from fellow Tennesseans whom they regarded as being stricken with a collective madness. Theirs was but a narrow window of opportunity to escape forced conscription into what they considered to be an illegal and illegitimate cause. The controversy that now provoked a decision, of course, had been brewing since the attack on Fort Sumter in April. When Lincoln called on Tennessee to contribute volunteers to help put down the rebellion, Governor Isham Harris, an ardent secessionist, was defiant, 
and regarded the very request as a provocation. Tennessee will not send a single man for the purposes of coercion, he declared, but 50,000 if needed to defend our rights and the rights of our southern brothers. Harris convened a special session of the state legislature, which on May 6, 1861, passed a bill declaring Tennessee's independence. The governor immediately used his executive powers to enter a military alliance with the new Confederate States of America. With his enthusiastic approval, upwards of 20,000 Confederate troops, mostly from other states, were deployed throughout Tennessee. Their very presence was meant to intimidate any Unionist opposition, and it did that very well. Secession was well accomplished at this point, but the legislature issued a referendum so it could be ratified by a popular vote. Prior to the plebiscite, a number of prominent men, including former governor and current U.S. Senator Andrew Johnson, had met in Knoxville in May to rally the Unionists in the state. They regaled one another with hours of speeches, and they passed numerous resolutions fervently condemning the actions of the governor and the legislature. Nothing that would change anything. They did, however, issue two calls that had some consequence. First, the Knoxville Convention called for the recruitment of a force from Tennessee to answer President Lincoln's call for volunteer troops. And as part of the resolution, they appointed Lieutenant Samuel Carter, U.S. Navy, to command the volunteers and assigned to him the rank of Brigadier General. Samuel Perry Carter was a scion of the prominent ironworks family of Carter County, for whose grandfather the county was named. A footnote, by the way, here. Some records, including some official citations and otherwise competent histories, have incorrectly attributed his middle name as Powhatan, according to an alleged family connection to the famed Indian chief. In fact, however, the initial P in his name stands for Perry, his mother's maiden name. Powhatan may have been a nickname, though, and apparently Carter did use it as a code name during a covert mission. We'll talk about that sometime way down in the future. For his own part, Carter only always used the middle initial. End of footnote. So, at a young age, Samuel Carter had left behind the family ironworks business to enter the United States Navy. He had begun, or he had been, serving on a ship stationed in Brazil when the war broke out. He came to the notice of the anti-secession movement through a passionately pro-union letter he had written, recently published in Parson William Brownlow's Knoxville Whig. Denouncing secession as treason, he implored Tennessee to adhere to the Constitution and the Union, even if she has to stand alone among the slaveholding states. Now, Carter's military appointment by the Knoxville Unionists was purely symbolic. They had no authority to appoint anyone. But it would have effects, one of which was to call him in from naval duty. Carter applied for and received leave from the Navy and returned home to see what he must do next. The second measure of consequence was a call for another convention to be held in Greenville on a date after the results of the secession vote would be known so that a suitable response could be formulated. On June 5, 1861, the statewide ballot on the matter brought out 156,632 voters, including 
some of the soldiers from other states who weren't necessarily citizens of Tennessee, but they went to, uh, the vote went two to one for secession. Uh, by the way, technically, parenthetical note, technically Tennessee did not secede. It declared itself an independent state and later aligned itself with the Confederate States of America. In other words, it, it seceded. But there are some who are sticklers for terms, and so I thought I'd put that in. So in Tennessee, it was two to one for secession. But in East Tennessee, the vote was two to one against secession. The thought of the breaking of the Union was as abhorrent to these people as the thought of the abolition of slavery was to their neighbors in the plantation areas of Middle and Western Tennessee. The Greenville Convention did convene on June 17th, and there it was proposed that East Tennessee, in effect, secede from the rest of the state and forcibly resist any compulsion to join the Confederacy. Uh, the conventioners realized then, that after, they, after putting that on the table, that uh, a declaration like that was going to bring a swift and harsh response from the governor, and so they chose instead to make a more moderate appeal. The resolution that actually passed was a conciliatory request that this region be left alone to abide in the Union. No one realistically thought that the offer would be accepted, but the delegates felt it necessary to express their convictions without provoking further hostilities. And they also hoped to buy a little time for the people of East Tennessee to make up their own minds as individuals what they should do. At least they could say that they held out an olive branch. During the convention, a company of colorfully dressed zouaves who called themselves Louisiana Tigers rode through Greenville on their way to Virginia. The question is, were they part of the original Louisiana Tiger Brigade formed in New Orleans by Major Chatham Robredo Wheat, which were en route at this time to Manassas, Virginia? Can't say for sure, but it seems probable. Incensed by the stars and stripes flying over the convention, they struck down the flag, threatened the conventioners, and committed some vandalism before leaving town. Those present regarded it as a herald of the hostilities that would soon become much more serious, and can't say that they were wrong. Governor Harris, of course, declined the request to let East Tennessee set out the impending war. For a few weeks, there was an uneasy calm before the storm. Scott County sued in state court for the right to secede from the state and was denied, although the court also did issue a moot decree that the state itself had no right to secede from the Union. In Washington County, a certain community that became known as Bricker's Republic also tried to declare independence from the state, a movement that simply fell apart before anyone got seriously hurt. And this is a fascinating little story. Uh, Bricker's Republic was actually Bricker's District in Washington County. Only fragmentary records remain of all of this. Following the logic of secession, certain leaders of this district proposed that if a state could secede from the Union, then a county could secede from a state, and a district could secede from a county. So they proceeded to do that. They even elected a Congress and a president, a fellow named Jacob Hill, to govern them. 
And then they published an appeal for others to join them. It was a short-lived, whistling-in-the-dark kind of a movement, more of a demonstration than a rebellion. Uh, really, uh, so, really sounds, sounds more like grist for a Mark Twain satire than a serious political move. It did remain a lively memory for those who lived through it, though, and members of that generation continued for decades to call that section of the county Bricker's Republic, much to the puzzlement of younger folk. In mid-July, Governor Harris sent General Felix Zollicoffer, remember that name, you're going to hear it again, with 4,000 new recruits to Knoxville to contain the unrest. Zollicoffer was not a trained military man. He was a newspaper editor in Nashville, one who, in fact, had editorialized against secession. But after it had become a fait accompli, he accepted the situation and presented himself for service to his state and was consequently appointed to a command position. He was actually sympathetic toward the Unionists, and he tried to practice restraint. But the very presence of these soldiers implied a threat that offended the dissidents of East Tennessee. The Unionists saw him as an oppressor, not as an ally. And um, his responses to their resistance confirmed to them their opinion. The immoderate zeal of the inexperienced Confederate patrols only aggravated the situation and increased resistance. In his memoir... Lincoln's Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, who was a native of Fentress County, describes the spirit of the time. He writes, I remember old soldiers telling me that everybody of military capability was expected to go to war. It really didn't make so much difference which side he fought. He had the privilege of selecting his own side, but he could not lie around the community shirking and dodging. He had to go out and fight. Many a young farmer like Alvis Hicks found himself caught up in a tide of events that compelled him to make a decision. It was a choice pressed upon them. The Sunday Morning Meeting From Jack Snow, we find out that for many of these men, the day of decision was Sunday, August 11th, 1861. Appropriately, it was a decision they made at church, the old Union Baptist Church of Stockton Valley, about a half dozen miles as the crow flies from Loudoun to the northeast and from Philadelphia to the southeast, both in present-day Loudoun County, but which was still then Roan County. The name Union Baptist Church, by the way, has no political implications. There were several varieties of Baptist. East Tennessee was thick with them, and the Union designation for a church indicates a group of Baptists willing to put aside their sectarian differences in order to have enough members to form a congregation and have regular services. The weather was typical for August. Sunny, hazy, hot, not as dry as usual. This year, this particular year, August was almost as rainy as May, and the countryside was unusually and comfortingly green and lush, if <clears throat> uncomfortably humid. All around, as the temperature rose, was the loud whirring of the cicadas, the familiar song of summer. Farmers and their families from miles around had gathered for preaching, maybe around 150 in attendance and maybe more. 
And after the preaching, the women stood in the shade, watched the children play, conversed with unusual seriousness. Some may have formed a prayer circle. While inside the meeting house, the men engaged in a fateful discussion. Seventy years later, Jack Snow specifically remembered the names of 34 men who were present, along with capsule memories of what became of them, such as who survived imprisonment and who did not. The youngest in the group was 16 years old. Included in the list also was Will Hicks, who, with Jack Carroll, he said, survived 13 months in Confederate prison camps. Also named is J.B. Joe Hicks, who was captured but escaped from the Richmond Prison Hospital. Alvis Hicks is not mentioned by name, although he certainly did join the regiment along with the group. It is possible that Alvis was picked up along the way, or else he was, in fact, at the meeting, although... Jack may not have just specifically thought of him at that time. There were no secessionists here. Yet though these men were not slave owners, neither were they Republican abolitionists. Let's be honest. All the line officers of the 2nd Tennessee did own slaves at one time or another. At the time of the war's outbreak, probably the leading slaveholder was Major Eli Mathis Matt Cleveland of Hamilton County. A prosperous man, owning $25,000 estate with eight slaves, Cleveland enlisted with the 2nd Tennessee at Camp Dick Robinson on September 28, 1861, at the age of 39. He mustered with Company F, but was immediately promoted to major of the regiment. But he resigned in February of 1862 due to poor health. To a man, those in that Sunday meeting had voted for Tennessean John Bell and his running mate, former Harvard president and famed orator Edward Everett, who would later deliver the two-hour keynote speech to dedicate the National Cemetery at Gettysburg, you know, the Gettysburg Address (laughs) no one remembers. Originally Whigs, they liked the platform of the Constitutional Union Party, and they embraced its slogan, the Union as it is, and the Constitution as it is. When they read a newspaper, it was William Brownlow's Knoxville Whig, and they were surely influenced by his passionate editorials opposing secession. They were disappointed in the outcome of the presidential election, but did not see it as a cause for terminating the Union. They were disturbed about the peeling away of the southern states and bitterly disappointed in the vote of their own state two months ago to join them. The clouds were gathering, the drums were beating, yet... These men had farms and families. Not many were eager to take up arms against their fellow Tennesseans. Imbued with an independent spirit, as Tennesseans are, most had probably hoped to remain neutral. They wished to be let alone and not drawn into the hostilities. Well, that wish was becoming increasingly untenable. There were reports that Confederate officials were sending soldiers throughout the pro-Union region to compel men to prove their loyalty to a Confederate Tennessee by fighting for it. Some were rumors, but many of the stories were verified and involved people they knew or were related to. A 29-year-old farmer named John Bowman stood to call the meeting to order. Bowman had represented Roan County at the Greenville Convention. He brought to the meeting news that Lieutenant S.P. Carter, U.S.N., of the well-known family from Carter County, 
had been authorized by the President of the United States to organize a brigade of volunteers from his home state for the defense of the Union. The gathering place was across the Cumberland in Kentucky, almost 200 miles away. It would be part of an army led by Kentuckian, Brigadier General Robert Anderson, the hero of Fort Sumter. For his part, Bowman had already signed the papers in Kingston the day before and was authorized to enroll others with him. Mr. Byrd, up in Kingston, had already left with a large column. Alvis and Will's brother James Hicks apparently was a member of that group. Well, the proposal was not immediately well received by all, as the Declaration of Independence says men ought not to change their governance for light and transient causes. Most of them had not personally felt any persecution. Uh, many were not sure it was necessary to make this decision right now. Maybe the problem was just being exaggerated by high emotions and wouldn't seem so bad after everyone cooled down. The discussion became vigorous, the dispute heated. The inclination was some was to wait and see. Certain ones, however, passionately insisted that the time for decision was at hand and that delay would be fatal. The secessionists were constantly condemning the federal government for a train of abuses and usurpations, yet with stunning hypocrisy they were now turning around and inflicting those very abuses on fellow Southerners who did not share their belief that the election of Lincoln was the, was the breaking point. One man objected that they were being asked to leave their homes and families defenseless. What would their loved ones do if the rebels came after them? The answer? Well, what would they do if the rebels come after them now? Even if all the men present should join with every other man in this part of the county. They didn't have the members, the numbers to resist the Confederates, and they certainly didn't have the guns. But if they few joined with the thousands of others already gathering across the state line, soon there would be an army strong enough to march right back in and set things straight. At this point, someone must have stood up to play the role of a Patrick Henry. Perhaps it was John Bowman standing up to his full six-foot height, dark eyes flashing. Or perhaps it was the swarthy, raven-haired James Melton. Whoever it was, he argued persuasively that there would be no escape from the war, that the only choice that they had was whether to serve their own conscience or the Confederacy. He also pointed out that the window for making that choice was rapidly closing, for soon the rebels would be making the choice for them, even so prominent a man as Mr. Thomas A. R. Nelson, who had presided over the Knoxville and Greenville conventions and had been elected to Congress after the secession vote, had been intercepted and arrested on his way to Washington, and he now sat in a jail in Knoxville awaiting an unknown fate. Zollicoffer was in Knoxville, practically had the city under martial law right now, and his troops were spreading out from there to quash dissent and close the border. It would not be a matter of months or even weeks, but days. And then there must be a reckoning. The Unionists were already isolated, and if they did not act now, they would soon be cut off. The meeting lasted probably an hour. At last, the congregation of valley farmers, craftsmen, maybe a mountaineer or two, determined that they must serve conscience. These Southern men would go to join a band of their fellow Southerners in defense of the United States and its Constitution. They elected John Bowman to be their leader and spokesman. 
And the meeting adjourned, and the men dispersed to their homes. They shared perhaps a last Sunday dinner at home, packed up some gear, bid farewell to their families and sweethearts, and began gathering for their trek to Kentucky. You have been listening to Chapter 1 of Tennessee Men, Don't Call Them Yankees, the untold Civil War story of Southern men who fought for the Union. This series will follow the second from their enlistment to their first major battle at Mill Springs. Be sure to tune into the next episode. We'll describe their unbelievably hazardous journey to Camp Dick Robinson and what they found when they got there. This is Insight, and I'm Gary Nation. Thank you for listening.